And so open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, the text that um, you heard read part of it from Carrie and Emily. We'll, we'll read it together in a few minutes, but I, I want to give you an introduction first before we read it together as a corporate body. And to do that, I want to take you back last week. Um, if you missed Lloyd's message last week, it was exceptionally good. And the reason I say that is he used some illustrations that I thought just absolutely captured the heart of what Jesus is saying, pun intended, right? And I want to go back through that a little bit so that you can have that context because it's going to help you understand our text in a brand new way. I really believe that. The verses that Lloyd covered last week, Matthew 5, 17 through 20, the very last of those verses, verse 20 says this, Jesus taught, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I hope that hits you hard because it would have hit the original audience hard. It's like the scribes and Pharisees are the experts at righteousness. Unless my righteousness exceeds theirs, I can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm in deep trouble. And that's exactly the response that Jesus' audience would have had. So what in the world is Jesus talking about? And how can our righteousness exceed that of the experts of righteousness? the scribes and Pharisees. Well, this is where Lloyd's illustration really was, was handy. He told the, the story of the Titanic, the sinking of the Titanic, and he put a picture of an, of an iceberg up on the screen. So let's go ahead, if we can, put that up there. And Lloyd said, you know, an iceberg, you only can see 10% of, of the iceberg. 10% above the surface, 90% below the surface. We, we know this, or most of us know this. And the problem for the Titanic was not the 10% above that they could see, it was the 90%, the great mass of ice below the water that created this problem for them. As they hit, as they rammed that iceberg, it was the iceberg that won because of this great weight, this great mass. And so the way Lloyd applied that was he said, just like for that ship, for us, it's not the iceberg we can see that hurts us. It's the iceberg we can't see. In other words, being a fully alive, Christ-centered, fully flourishing human being is much less about the external appearances, much more about what's beneath the waterline of life what we all try to hide below the exterior, below the surface, so no one can see it. And so our church's mission, when we say help people find wholehearted life in Jesus, let me show you what we're talking about. And this is, I, I heard there was a technical glitch last week that kept Lloyd from drawing this. So we, we've recreated it here uh, in, in a way that I want you to see. So here's the whole heart that we talk about. You know, the Bible talks about our heart as the whole inner person, thoughts, desires, emotions, choices. Here's how most of us live. You know, think about the iceberg illustration. This is how most of us tend to live our lives is we live in such a way that there's only a small part of us above the surface. There's only a small part of us that, that we think actually really matters. And so we spend all of our energy and effort on our external appearances. And guys, I don't just mean like you know fashion and beauty. That's just the surface of it. It's really about our goodness, our external goodness. And what we post on on Instagram, and it's, we need people to think and believe our lives are going well and that we're a decent parent and all these other things. What, what really is mattering most to God is what's internal. Another way to think about it is what's up top, so to speak, is our doing. What's below is our being. And if you want to know why so many people implode, particularly public figures, oftentimes implode, it's because they think that what really matters is what everybody can see. So, you know, they'll, they'll be caught in some kind of foible or some kind of indiscretion or sin, and they'll just say, okay, I'll be a good boy. I'll be a good girl from, from here on out. And without addressing what's beneath the surface of their heart, they're going to implode. They're going to crash and burn. So Jesus, in this sermon, is essentially saying, you've heard it said, 
Look good on the outside. Follow the rules. Do all these things. I'm going to tell you there's actually more going on in these commandments than meets the eye. So Lloyd's passage last week was an introduction to the next six messages. And in each of these six messages, Jesus is going to choose one command from the Old Testament. And he's going to talk about that command both externally and internally, both above the waterline, so to speak, and then below the waterline of the heart. And you can go ahead and remove that illustration if you would. Now, I want to give you a fair warning about next week's text. So this week's um, about murder, which is, you know, no small thing for sure. Next week's about adultery. And as we do here at Fellowship, we're just going to teach the texts as they come. So next week's about adultery and lust, and Lloyd's going to be sharing this message with you. And we just want to let you know, it may not be the message that you'll want to have your children in here with. So if you've got children in the room, fantastic. Or if you're online and got your children watching with you at home, fantastic. You might want to make other plans. And it's up to you, according to their age. It's not going to be crazy, but it's going to be important. It's going to be important for us to talk about these things um, in the weight that Jesus gives them. That's next week's text. Today's just about murder, so, you know, no big deal, right? It's going to be okay. Now I'd like us all to stand. I know you're comfortable, but let's all stand up because we're honoring God's word, and we're going to read it together as a corporate body. This is our text for this morning. Uh, I'll lead you, and we'll all read it together on the screen. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty, penny. This is the living word of God for us today. Bow your heads briefly. Father, would you show us through this text what it means to follow your son, Jesus? Amen. You can have a seat. So here is the first of six Old Testament commands that Jesus is going to do the iceberg trick with, if you you see what I'm saying. This first one is you shall not murder. I think he started with murder very intentionally. Here's why. Of all the Ten Commandments, and then, you know, there's a total of about 613 different commandments in the Old Testament, this might have been the one that the most people in Jesus' audience would say, phew, I'm not guilty of that one. Like, I might be bad in these other areas, but I'm not a murderer. You know, you heard Carrie say that in that video. She's like, yeah, maybe I wasn't quite right in my conversation with this girl, but I am not a murderer. This is where we all go. And what Jesus is doing here is he's doing something very interesting, fascinating. I want to put the iceberg back on on the screen as as I show you this. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying this, look, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, Look below the waterline of murder. 
You know, get to the heart of murder. And what you're going to see is you're going to see attitude. You're going to see emotion. You're going to see some things that are boiling underneath the surface. If you think you've never murdered, Jesus is saying, you have not understood the full intention of the law. Because murder is an attitude of the heart. Now, specifically, Jesus calls out three things that are below the waterline of murder. You can kind of put them all in the category of anger, but there's some some nuancing going on. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother. He says, everyone who insults his brother. Everyone who says, you fool. I want to talk about them one at a time, and then we'll put them all together. Let's let's start with, I'll put these verses on the screen. Let's start with the, the big category of anger. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother. Now, the anger in this context is not any and all anger. Jesus is not saying here all anger is sin. One of the reasons we know that is because Jesus himself became angry. Multiple instances. Uh, also, there's a, 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 later in the New Testament, there's a text that says, in your anger, do not sin. So just anger itself is not, is not sinful. But Jesus is saying something really interesting. He's saying, everyone who is angry with his brother, and in the full context of, of what you see going on, you realize Jesus is not talking about righteous anger. Now you say, well, what is righteous anger? Righteous anger, the best, best I can des- describe this is, think about the things Jesus was angry about. Jesus was the righteous one. He was angry with injustice. He was angry with brokenness. He was angry with death. He was angry with sin. And some, he was angry at the brokenness of the fallen creation around him and its impact on, its fellow human, on his fellow human beings. Now, the, the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here in the Sermon on the Mount is not righteous anger. It is ego-centered anger. It is, uh, I'm angry at my brother because he's getting in my way, because he's annoying me, or he's infuriating me, or, or you know, he's offended me in some way. This kind of anger is just saying, that person is an affront to my agenda, is an affront to my ego. The kind of anger Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount lacks love for anyone but ourselves. Jesus says, when you're angry like that, you're liable to the same judgment as the murderer because you have the same heart as the murderer. Now, a quick aside about a key word in this text. When I was first studying this text, the single word that stood out to me first was the word brother because it's actually repeated four times in the passage. And that got my attention. So I won't, I won't go through all of them, but verse 22, whoever is, ang- whoever is angry with his brother, whoever insults his brother, verse 23, if you remember that your brother has something against you, and then down in verse 24, first be reconciled to your brother. What's the point of Jesus clearly intentionally saying the word brother, 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 brother? And, and by the way, in this context, it absolutely means brother or sister. It, it's, it's both hands. He's not just talking about just the male, the male um, gender here. And I thought about this. I thought, okay, either Jesus is saying that this whole, pa- whole passage only applies to family members or clans members or tribal members or fellow Christians, depending on how you interpret that word. It's a possibility. Or it's a reminder to us that all human beings are meant to be treated as if they were our closest family members. 
And so I started thinking about another passage when, when the Pharisees were trying to find a loophole in the command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they said to Jesus, they said, well, who is my neighbor? Expecting him to say, well, all those of the tribe of Israel. And he tells them a story about a Samaritan, the enemy, and how the enemy treated the Hebrew as a brother. And, and he says, who's the brother now? It's this idea that, that every human being is created in God's image. And, and it bears the glory of God in them. And they are worthy of honor, dignity, and respect. I believe, my interpretation, is Jesus repeats this word to go out of his way, to remind his hearers that every human being is meant to be treated as a brother or sister. Now, we've talked about this, this first one, everyone who was angry with his brother. Let, let's talk about the second one, whoever insults his brother. In fact, I'm going to talk about the next two because they go together. Whoever says you fool. Whoever insults, literally in the Greek would read, whoever says raka. Well, what does raka mean? Raka was an Aramaic term uh, that was an insult. And it essentially, it literally means empty. But it, it sort of had this idea of like, here's an empty person. Like they're an idiot. They're stupid. There's nothing there upstairs. It was an insult to someone, particularly an insult to their intelligence. So whoever says you idiot to a brother, you stupid person. Then he goes on and says, whoever says you fool, th this is moros. So you have raka and moros. Moros was another insult that they used at that time. We eventually get the English word moron from moros. And there are similar words, raka, moros, but if you were going to distinguish them at all, moros, or sorry, raka was more about someone's intelligence and moros was more about their character. So you might, in English, think about moros this way as calling someone a lowlife, a good for nothing, a loser. What Jesus is saying, these two insults, what these two words have in common, raka, empty, moros, lowlife, is what they have in common is the, is the idea of contempt. And I want to I talk about contempt, and I want to draw it up here because I think it's, it's, it's a nuance of anger that's really important. So Jesus is saying, beneath the, the waterline of anger, of, of, sorry, of murder, you have anger and you have contempt. Contempt is a very important, very powerful concept to understand. Let, let's talk about it. Contempt is the belief that someone is so far below you that you have disdain or disgust for them. Contempt uh, carries with it a sense of superiority, that you're up on your perch, and, and you're so above another person that you look down and say, what an idiot. What a lowlife. What a loser. You can't say those things with, without some superiority going on in your mind and being like, oh, I'm not that, but that person is. I'm right, they're wrong. I'm smart, they're not. I'm morally good. I'm on the right side of this they're on the wrong side. What an idiot. What a lowlife. What a loser. This is contempt. By the way, I remember listening to a podcast some years ago, and it was these therapists, marriage therapists, that were talking about um, marriage counseling. And they said, you know, there, there was one thing that always was the best indication to us when a couple was really in trouble. And it was when um, they, they were no longer talking about their hurt and their wounds, but they had contempt, and they showed contempt for the other person. Name-calling, 
this, this attitude of superiority or the eye roll. The eye roll, guys, is an expression of contempt. And I thought to myself, I've done that this week. <laughs> None of us can escape this stuff. All right, this is exactly what Jesus is saying. Like, you have to read this and you have to say, oh my goodness, I didn't know I was a murderer. You have the heart of a murderer at times. This is what Jesus is saying. So if I could summarize what Jesus is saying, beneath the, the iceberg you can't see is internal, relational brokenness. And it is expressed by you through angry words, contemptuous glances, insults to one another, either out loud or in your head. Guys, your thoughts are not immune. Do you see this? Stop and consider how penetrating and brilliant Jesus is. He's revealing the attitudes of the heart underneath the surface sin of murder. It's anger, it's contempt, it's, it's relational brokenness, it's, it's self-centered. It's, I am what matters. I don't care about them, their opinions, their feelings, their low life, their loser. This passage goes so far beyond murder, it even goes far beyond anger. It's ultimately about being rightly related with your fellow human beings. Think about it. The entire sermon is about becoming a person who is fully, gloriously human in the image of Jesus himself, the true human being. So Jesus is saying when there's, when there's self-centered relational brokenness in your life, you are something slightly less than fully human. You are something slightly less than, than fully, genuinely, gloriously in the image of God. Because what is murder when you really get down to it, guys? Think about this. Murder is a devaluing of a human life so much to the place of destroying it. So literally what murder is. Another way to think about murder is it's believing a person has so gotten in your way that you would be better off or the world would be better off if that person did not exist any longer. Or... Think of it this way. Murder is believing that you are so superior to another human being that their life is not as valuable as your life. It's an attitude. It's a heart condition. Jesus is saying this. It's, it's internal, self-centered, relational brokenness. It comes with pride. It carries disdain. It's the ultimate fruit of your own broken heart. Now, before we move on to the rest of the text, I want to apply this in our cultural moment. You think there's any anger out there right now? You think there's any contempt? You think there's any internal self-centered relational brokenness? Oh my, oh my. What does it look like to follow Jesus in the autumn of 2020. I think if Jesus were here with us right now, and, and he is, is he not, through his spirit? Here's what he would say. And, and, and he is saying today, living word of God for us today, through the spirit of Christ speaking it. 
all right, 21st century Jesus followers in Middle Tennessee in the fall of 2020, you want to know what it looks like to follow me? Let's start with you shall not murder. But here's the hope. 2020 is a great opportunity for Jesus people to be salt and light. Because the contrast of actually living like Jesus and living how everybody else is living right now has never been greater in my lifetime. The problem is we have to be salty. We have to be light. And so what would it look like, literally, in this issue of, of anger, relational brokenness, contempt, all these things, what would it look like for us to follow Jesus? This is what I want to I push in, because I love you, and I care about you, and I see this in my own heart, and I know it's in yours as well. So here we're going to go. It must start with you repenting. It must start of you repenting of the attitudes in your heart. It starts with your own repentance of your anger and your own repentance of your contempt. It, it means saying something like this, I repent of the internal attitudes of my heart toward people who see things differently than me and feel things differently than I do. I repent of my anger. I repent of my feelings of superiority and contempt. I repent of my urge to insult someone's character or intelligence. And, and then once you've repented at that heart level, then you can engage the conversations. I'm not saying don't engage the conversations and don't engage the issues. That's not Jesus-like either. I'm saying repent inside, and then you can engage conversations about the issues in ways that treat other people like brothers and sisters. In short, following Jesus looks like repentance in our hearts that then leads to new ways of engaging the world that break the pattern of all the people around us, how they're engaging the world. This is what it means to be salt. This is what it means to be light. Another way to think about it, guys, transform choices can only flow out of transform hearts. Transform thoughts from Scripture that lead to transformed emotions. Oh, I no longer feel contempt for that person. I feel a bit of empathy for them. Did you? Brian's story was such a great example of that this morning. Then those transformed thoughts and emotions birth transformed desires. Oh, my desire for them, my desire for our country, my desire for this situation, my desire for my own heart is such and such. Then you can make new choices, you see. You're walking the transformational pathway with your whole heart with Jesus at the center. We need this right now. Okay. Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on in the text. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to give two very practical examples of what it looks like to move toward wholeness in our relationships. Okay, now look at the first word of verse 23. So, like that's a key word because it means that Jesus is applying what he just taught. Okay, so you ready for him to apply this? Example number one. If you're offering your gift at the altar in there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Oh my goodness, guys. I cannot tell you how... Uh, absolutely like jaw-dropping this would have been. Here's why. Jewish person, first century, which was Jesus' audience. The sacrifice at the altar was the most holy thing they ever did in their lives. The most sacred moment of their entire lives. They would travel for miles. Most of them didn't live in Jerusalem. Jesus' audience lived in Galilee. They would travel for days 
to come to the temple and go to the altar and bring the animal that was pure and unblemished and offer it to the priest who take the animal and kill the animal and then burn it on the altar. It was the most sacred moment in the rhythms of their lives. Jesus is saying, even if you're on the doorstep of the most sacred, holy, worshipful moment of your life, and right there you remember that your brother has something against you, drop the animal. Go home. It's better for you to reconcile with your brother, and then you can come back and offer your sacrifice. Guys, do you you see? Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, this is how important this is to God. He's saying, and I'll understand all this, but he's saying from God's perspective, it is a higher priority to your father that you get relationally right with your brother than it is to offer your sacrifice of relational rightness to God. Somehow there's a connection between right relationship with God and right relationship with your fellow human beings. Oh my 1 Samuel 15, 22, does the Lord take as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Here's how I would summarize this. The choice for the worshiper at the altar is about which gift he will give to God. The animal or his heart. One is very, very easy. One is very difficult. One is is checking the box of religious duty. Another is full devotion to a creator. God is saying, it's your heart I want, not your sacrifice. Jesus goes on to give a second example that's, that's equally as stark. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If the first example was about the priority of right relationships, this example is the urgency of right relationships. Let me explain. In those days, and even in our own culture till fairly recently, if you owed a debt you did not pay, you could be thrown in jail. You could be put in prison. Anybody ever play Monopoly? <laughs> Go to jail. That's not about like, um, you, um, you, you broke some other rule. No, it's a, it's a debtor's jail. It's debtor's prison. You got to pay to get out. So what would happen in this culture and in many cultures since then is that you owed a debt, you get put in jail, and you'd stay in jail until it's all paid, every penny. And you're thinking, well, how would you pay a debt if you can't work it off because you're in jail? Well, you'd have to depend on family members or friends or people that care about you. That's why some languished in prison for years. No one was there to pay their debt. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He's like, once you get before the judge, the window of opportunity to pay the debt's closed. So Jesus is saying, there will be a moment in time, men and women, where you can no longer right the relationship. So here's what I'd say to you. If you've got a relationship in your life that's not right, whether you think it's your fault or not, we'll talk about that a bit more later. If you're still alive and they're still alive, the window of opportunity is open. 
but it will close. So Jesus is saying, even if you're literally on the way to the court, it's like the, the, the court is 300 steps away. You still have an opportunity to make it right. It's 200 steps away. Go, go, pay your debt or, or beg for forgiveness. Make a friend. It's 100 steps away. You still have an opportunity. It's 30 steps away. You still can make it right relationally. Now you're in the court before the judge. The door is closed. There, there was a song from my high school years that I could not get out of my head when I was thinking about Jesus' example here. And um, this is going to take you back to contemporary Christian music in the early 90s. Okay, from Stephen Curtis Chapman's Great Adventure album. Okay, so, so Some of you are with me right now. 1992, I was in high school, huge Stephen Curtis Chapman fan. There, there's a song he, he sang called Still Called Today. And I'm like, this song was about this. Listen, lyrics of the song go, there's a hole the size of a cruel world in a wounded heart somewhere that's learning to hide the pain. There's a thorn stuck in the conscience of someone who spoke a word in anger and they can't wash away the stain. Sorry is such a hard word to say. But while it's still called today, won't somebody make it right? Before the day slips into night and the moments waste away, while it is still called today, we've got to say the words that are longing to be heard because tomorrow may be too late. Go on and say what you need to say while it's still called today. It's a great interpretation of these two verses. Now, let me confess something to you. As a teacher, as a Bible teacher, all the time God is doing work, conviction, work in my heart before I ever get up on this stage because you can't with integrity wrestle through the meaning of a text and, and exhort a body to apply it if you don't do some your own work first. And, and I can't say I do this every week great. But over the last two weeks, I knew this was coming. I knew this text was coming. And God kept bringing one name to my mind. And, you know, it's one of those deals where I'm like, I don't know that it was really my fault mostly, but the relationship's not whole. And, uh, I, you know, I, I put it off, I put it off, and then finally, you know, like, Thursday before I taught this, this text. Um, this has been last week at, at Brentwood, but the Thursday before I taught the text, God just said, Rob, well, it is still called a day. And so I reached out. And, and it was one of those things that was really hard. I mean, there are things that are really hard and there are things that are really hard. This was really hard. And I was nervous. I was scared as I was, you know, reaching out. And, and, uh, and just so you know, there's not some like awesome happy story on the other end of this, okay? You know, someday, maybe, I hope there will be. We'll see. There's still conversations that need to be had, but, but God called me to do something, and I did it. And, and guys, I don't always do that, but can I just tell you, there's something about hearing God's word and just saying, I'm just going to obey it. I'm just going to do it. I feel more free. Now, anytime we encounter a part of the Bible that rips us open and lays our heart bare, where can we go besides Jesus? There's no place to go besides Jesus. And so what you do, guys, if you're feeling any sense of like heaviness in this, because there's a name in your mind or two or three names in your mind, go to Jesus. I mean, literally, as I'm talking right now, just go to Jesus. Ask for grace, first of all. Ask for mercy. You will always find it when you ask him. And then ask for help. And Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. And now help me do what I need to do. 
That, that's what I had to do. That's what you're going to have to do. You see, Jesus was not just a brilliant teacher of God's law. He was the embodiment of God's law. This is what it means when, when, when he says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. In other words, I've come to live out in fullness every dot and every single stroke of a pen of this law. So when Jesus was unjustly arrested and when he was beaten and cursed and and spat upon and stripped naked, he did not respond in anger. He did not show contempt, although as God, he had every right to sit on a perch of superiority. Instead, he called out to the Father, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. He took the relational brokenness of the world. He didn't have responsibility for it. He took it. He put it on himself. He died under the load of relational brokenness. That's what happened. He put himself in our place so we could be put in his place. Guys, his place was whole with the Father. Our place was broken. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you what I have. I'm going to take your place so you can have my place. And from that point on, the cross on, to to quote Tom Wright, reconciliation is no longer simply an ideal we might strive for. It is an achievement, an accomplishment of Jesus Christ, which we're now called to embody. Guys, we're Christians. We bear the name of Jesus. We bear the name of the reconciling one. We are little Christs. We are little reconcilers. This is what we are. I want to ask the band to come back out. And as they come out, I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup in your hand. Don't, don't, don't eat it yet, but just take it in your hand. You might want to go ahead and start peeling back these layers. There's a top layer for the bread. There's a, a, another layer for the juice. And, you know, work on that a little bit. And let me keep, let me focus your, your mind on, on these words because I've got some important things to say before we take the bread and the cup. We observe the Lord's table every week to remember and reinforce the core belief that our faith is based on and that our lives are based on. Do you know what the core belief that our lives are based on? Reconciliation. It is God reconciling himself to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guys, that's the core of the core of the core of our faith, our belief, of our lives. Jesus did all this. He paid our debt to reconcile us. He's the ultimate offering at the altar. And so Just like for the Hebrew people, the high point of their worship was when they made that offering. Guess what? We don't have to make any offerings. We can't make offerings anymore that that, that, that can atone for our sins. But this is the high point of our worship. We remember the achievement. We remember the accomplishment. We ask for grace. And then, and then we, we take the, the, ener- the, the, the fuel, like the nutrients, the energy, spiritually speaking, of this remembrance... And it gives us the strength to be little reconcilers. 
And so now, just take the bread. Don't eat it, but just hold it in your hand. I just want you to have the bread in your hands while I read this to you. Have the bread in your hand if you have it. Here we are at our own altar right now, so to speak, and I want you to hear these words. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now I just invited you to pick up the bread. Now I'm gonna invite you to set it down. Before we eat, let's stop and consider our hearts. Let's obey the words of Jesus the best we know how. Right now in this moment. Guys, I don't know that I've ever taught a sermon that had as much of a right now tangible application as what I just read. And so here's what we're going to do. Before we take communion, we're going to have three or four minutes for you to do some work, for you to do some reflection. And, and we've got a question on the screen. Here it is. What is one relationship in my life that is not right as, the, as of this moment right now? What step can I take to move toward wholeness? Now, you might be thinking, I don't think I can take much of a step. You know, I'm in here and they're out there. Maybe the person sitting beside you, I don't know. But listen, here's what I want you to think about. The work that Jesus is calling you to do right now is heart work. That's where it has to start. Do the heart work in these next three or four minutes. Now, you might want and need, and I encourage you to also do something tangible. Maybe that just means write down the name in the margin of your Bible. Maybe it means pulling out a notepad or your phone and, and, and just write the first two sentences of an email or a text or, or a letter that you're going to write later on. The first two sentences, guys, are the hardest. If you can get past two sentences, you can do it. Maybe for you at this moment, you can send a text to someone right here, right now. Drop the animal. Go as far as you can go. Guys, reconciliation is a two-way street. I get that. Like, it's not all on you. I know that. But you know what is on you? Your heart. Your heart. That's all Jesus is asking you right now. So let's do this now together. Enter in.